Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 2, Episode 9, Mythology, Customs, and Religion. Much of what we believe about Yayoi religion has been reconstructed, but there is often a lot of confusion about what that means. Because we do not have written accounts from even a single Yayoi source, we use the testimony of their neighbors, as well as working backward from the later mythological stories, as well as utilizing archaeology and logic. Future discoveries will hopefully shed more light on specific Yayoi deities and practices, but in the meantime, we have to rely on reconstructions while keeping in mind that they are not in any way the final word on the matter. That being said, let's get started. There are a few big idea things we know for certain about the Yayoi. They were polytheists. They believed that creatures and objects in the natural world were animated by spirits or kami. And there was an emerging class of shamans. We are also reasonably certain that they tattooed their bodies and faces. The purpose behind these tattoos is often believed to be religious in nature, but the records of Wei claim that these tattoos were meant to help divers repel sharks and other dangerous ocean life as they hunted shellfish. It seems likely that the face tattoos were also meant to be intimidating in battle, especially given the rampant violence that defined the Yayoi period. That violence, in part, meant that death was frequent and funeral customs important to everyone. At the beginning of the Yayoi period, and something that marks that period as distinct from the Jomon period before it, we see a new kind of burial. Adopting the Korean custom, they began burying their dead in large globular pots which often bear traces of red pigment. Red is, to this day, considered a color of good fortune throughout East Asia, and it is inferred by archaeologists that it signified some kind of rebirth. Just as the seemingly dead rice kernels were placed in the ground, only to grow a new plant and bear abundant fruit, so the dead were planted, it seems, with the expectation that their spirits might linger and bring good fortune to their descendants. These pots are almost always found between the pit house residences and a large raised floor building whose purpose was to store rice and other foodstuffs. This is why archaeologists have made the connection between placing a dead relative in a pot in the ground and planting a seed, for it seems it would have been almost impossible to visit the granary without trotting upon those who had come before you. Throughout the last millennium before the common era, every member of any given Yayoi village had the honor of a pot burial. But in the first century CE, social changes meant that pot burial became the province of the powerful, who buried their dead in rows alongside paths in the villages. Whenever a commoner might travel through the village, they may have been reminded that those in charge have important ancestors and maybe even get the feeling that those ancestors were always watching. We know that the king of the Shang dynasty 
was partly a religious leader as well as a political leader. And, as I hope you recall from the last season, his people believed that his ancestors were well-connected in the afterlife. He would perform rituals to implore those relatives to put in a good word with D, the king of the gods. If we remove the religious element from this equation, we could argue that the king of the Shang dynasty had his people's best interests at heart, and that, in good times, they trusted him to represent those interests through his leadership and policies. We've talked previously about how the Yayoi peoples gradually developed their own hierarchies and how those early elite were only allowed that position because the people believed that they represented their interests. Around the beginning of the Common Era, the elites of each mega-village confederation abandoned the -the by-the-road burials and instead maintained a large rectangular burial mound upon which the villagers would gather for feasts and celebrations. There can be little doubt that ancestor worship was a particularly important practice for the increasingly aristocratic clans who inherited the governance of these hamlets and towns. Regarding deities, it was the later Yamato period, which we will cover next season, which is our source for the names within their pantheons. It is generally believed that each Yayoi community, of which there were hundreds, had its own set of gods to whom it paid homage, and that whenever one group conquered another in battle, the conquered people's gods would be added to the pantheon. This syncretic practice has similarities to the habits of the Philistines in the Hebrew Bible, as well as the later Roman and Alexandrian Empire, and is generally meant to ease the process of assimilating a conquered people. I mentioned in the first episode that the Yayoi way, if it can be defined as such, was to modify newer customs so that they had the flavor of an older custom, and thus the people would have a sense of continuity while also being able to take advantage of new technologies and new ways of organizing. Nowhere do we see this practice of connecting the old with the new, or the foreign with the local, taken more literally than the dotaku bells. The Dotaku seemed to be primarily the product of the Kansai region, located in central Honshu, where modern-day Osaka and Kyoto can be found. The many kingdoms of Kyushu preferred to bury bronze spearheads and other weapons, but for the Kansai Yayoi, the Dotaku was king. The early Dotaku were imported directly from Korea, likely intermediated by the Kyushu nobles. Before long, however, these bells were being recast into a design more pleasing to the Kansai aesthetic. Bronze could be recast, but every time it went through that process, it would lose a measurable amount of tin, making the copper within more likely to succumb to rust. Most of the dotaku that have been unearthed are about 10% tin, a low enough amount to be certain of local recasting. Keeping the bronze pure, however, didn't seem to be a concern. The earliest dotaku show signs that the clapper that hung inside of them was indeed used to ring the bells, 
possibly for rituals or as alarms when enemy clans attacked. The later period bells, however, in addition to getting generally smaller and slightly less ornate, show no signs of wear from ringing at all, meaning they were made just to be buried on isolated hilltops throughout the countryside. What this ritual was meant to symbolize, we cannot be sure. Theories range from clans forging alliances to agricultural rituals meant to bring a good harvest, but the square panels on the dotaku's sides were illustrated with engravings of boar hunts, epic battles, symbolic wildlife like deer and rabbit, and many other elements which we have yet to fully understand. As for the role of shamans in yayoi life, we don't know the particulars of the rituals they practiced, but with a bit of archaeological reverse engineering and some records of way testimony, we can construct a basic idea. Shamans throughout the villages likely practiced several forms of divination. One method for which we have both testimony and archaeological evidence is pyromantic scapulomancy. This ritual involved burning the removed shoulder blades of game animals and reading the cracks that would form in the surface of the bone. Divination itself was widespread throughout the Far East and, for that matter, throughout the world. The records of Wei also tell about another kind of spiritual figure who accompanied the Yayoi on ocean voyages. The primary method by which these men would earn the favor of the gods was by abstaining. Abstaining from what, you ask? Eating, drinking, bathing, speaking, pretty much everything. A yayoi group interested in exchanging gifts with the Chinese or Koreans might charter a small boat and bring along an abstainer who would sit apart from them and avoid doing anything. If the voyage went well, he would be richly rewarded with slaves, gifts from his happy passengers, and a share of the gifts they had just received from the people they visited. If the voyage went poorly, however, if a vicious storm or an accident killed or injured a member of the party, for example, the abstainer would be killed at the first possible opportunity. A high-stakes job, to be sure. The records of Wei claim that the Yayoi practiced human sacrifice, even mass immolation, that is, burning people alive, as part of their burial customs. This is where things can get tricky in the study of history. China in general, and the Wei state especially, had the habit of casting their neighbors as being brutal barbarians barely capable of mastering fire. Such neighbors, you see would benefit from enlightened leadership like theirs. This does not mean that we should discount the records of Wei entirely, just that we should be skeptical of any account that fits so nicely into their pejorative understanding of the world around them. Those same records, however, also claim that the Yayoi people engaged in something very peculiar as part of their religious rituals. They clapped. If you ever visit a busy temple or shrine in Japan, you will almost certainly see people engaged in a similar action today. 
usually clapping twice after making a donation to the temple or shrine as they bow their head to receive the blessing offered by the establishment's kami. It is an enticing thought that this practice of clapping before prayer might have its roots at least as far back as the Yayoi period. And speaking of Shinto, it is likely that two important shrines which are still active today were built during the Yayoi period. In Chugoku, which hopefully you remember by now is Western Honshu, there arose the Izumo Grand Shrine, which was a center for spirituality throughout the region. The shrine is dedicated to the worship of Okuninushi, one of the earliest known Shinto deities who is popularized as the god of marriage. The other shrine is the Ise Grand Shrine, located in southern Kansai, which is the central part of Honshu. Ise is dedicated to the worship of Amaterasu, the Japanese sun goddess, whose patronage would later include the Yamato court. The Nihon Shoki and Kojiki both claim that there was a conflict between Amaterasu and Okuninushi, which many historians claim was interpolated from actual conflict in the Yayoi period between the powers which would eventually emerge as the Yamato court, possibly Yamatai, which we will discuss in the next episode, and the powers of the Izumo region of Chugoku. Whatever the case, both shrines are still very popular with tourists and pilgrims alike. Next time, we'll explore the fascinating story of Queen Himiko and the mysterious, powerful ancient kingdom of Yamatai. Until then, thank you for listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash a history of Japan. 